This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Dawn Bowden, and Dawn is the Labour Assembly Member for Merthyr Tydfil and Rumney. I am. Dawn? Yeah. But you're not from Merthyr, are I'm you? I'm not, not originally, no. I was, uh, I was born in Bristol. I was born and brought up in Bristol. Um, lived the first half of my life there. Um, but I, I just realised the other day, actually, that I've lived more than half my life in um, in South Wales now. But you haven't acquired a South Wales accent. No, no. I think if you spend your formative years in a in a place, you 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 can't you can't really lose it. Bristolian, particularly West Country accents, you've got you roll the R's, you know, and and it's very distinctive. And people still say it to me now, even though when I go back to Bristol, because I still got family friends uh, that live there, and I go back to Bristol, and they say to me, "Gosh, you sound very Welsh." They say you sound very Welsh. I I think the you know the rough edges are gone, but but the R's are still there. <laughs> so what was it like growing up in Bristol? Well, it was fab. I mean, I I had a I had a fabulous childhood, uh, a very happy childhood. I it was a very ordinary upbringing, very typical working class uh, upbringing. My my dad was um was a, a petrol tanker driver for with, with, with Shell. My mum was a Meals on Wheels lady. She later went on to become one of those Rottweilers that works in a GP surgery, you know. And they were both, they were both very ordinary. You know, they, they themselves, products of ordinary working class families, but both big trade unionists and uh, Labour Party supporters. So I kind of grew up with that as the backdrop. I wouldn't say I had a, an upbringing where politics and trade unionism was pushed down my throat. It was just there. And what were your impressions of what trade unionism was about? How old were you before you grasped what the purpose of a trade union was? Well, I suppose um, there was a period in the 70s when I know my dad was on strike. And so there was a period when it was, you know, what, what's all this about? What's happening? But again, when I was very young, I remember my dad saying things to me like, everything we have, we owe to the trade union movement. And I was quite young when he would say things like that. So, like, you, you know, and that would be in the context of we might have a nice holiday. And when I'm saying a nice holiday, I'm talking about a caravan in Weymouth. But nevertheless, it was a fabulous holiday. We'd go to a caravan in Weymouth and it would be fantastic. And, and it was always sunny in those days, wasn't it? You know, so, so there was all of that. That was the, um, the, the it was always in the background. And that was, that was the first time I really remember it, I suppose. Dad being on strike sometime in the early 70s. And that kind of, we have what we have, we owe to the trade union movement. He was, he was very much, he felt his union was a very strong, in, in Shell at that time, um, you know, they, they delivered fantastic terms and conditions for the tanker drivers, you know. And so, yeah, so that was the kind of time, I guess. Yeah. 
And so uh, you did your schooling, um, but you didn't go to university, Dawn, did you? I didn't, no. I, was, I, had, a, I had a Catholic upbringing. Mum was a Catholic, Dad wasn't. So, and, and actually I did my family tree a, a little while back, or I, or I tried to do it. And I thought, well, you know, I was brought up a Catholic, but there weren't any Irish in the family, but I thought they must be there somewhere if I was brought up Catholic. And I did a bit of the family tree. And I got back to my Irish relatives in about 1840, and they came to Bristol through the from the potato famine, and they stayed there ever since. And then I was a product of that way down the road. So I had a, a Catholic education. I went to St Patrick's Primary School in Redfield, and then St Bernadette's Secondary School uh, in Whitchurch. And I didn't even stay on to sixth form. I left school at sixteen, and I went to what was then Sangwell Technical College. I guess it would be an FE college now, wouldn't it? Mm. Sangwell Technical College, where I did the uh, London School of Economics private secretarial certificate or something along those lines, it was called. And I suppose, uh, again, looking back and reflecting, because my my mum, I remember her saying this to me, you know, if you can learn to type, you'll always get a job. So there wasn't a huge ambition for girls. And it was very much that they, they thought, if you could learn to type and you could be a secretary as a girl, you've made it. Because, you know, in a few years' time, you get married, you'd have kids, and then you'd finish work, wouldn't you? You know, so that was the kind of ambition for girls in the kind of background and upbringing that I had. University was never talked about, was never on the agenda. And I remember my French teacher, actually, talking to my parents, because she told me this, the French teacher did, and was trying to persuade my parents to that I should stay on and take my A-levels. And they were saying, why does she need A-levels? She doesn't need A-levels. She's going to go to college. She's going to learn to type. <laughs> you know. So, and that's what I did. And I, and I went to college and I, I got my secretarial certificate. I did, I did economics, actually, at college in those two years, which, was, which held me in good stead later on in life. But, uh, and, and a bit of employment law as well, we did. Um, and then I left there and I went to work for, and, and this is ironic because you know in terms of, you know, some things are meant to be, I went to work for GKN. Oh right, so the steel company. The steel company, the GKN fasteners. Now of course, Geskin and Nettlefold's are a Merthyr company. Of course. And so at 18, I joined a company whose uh, birthplace was Merthyr Tidville. Wow. And that's where I've, I've kind of ended up. So, you know, the, the, how these things, you know, the connections through life. I worked there for, for a year, uh, about a year or so. I worked for the regional managing director, a guy called Terry Link. Uh, I always feel very, you know, very fond memories of Terry, but he was an out-and-out Tory, and I remember that. And I remember when I joined, I was, I was in about 18, but, you know, listening to my dad's words, you know, when you start... And we start work. First day, you ask where the union is and you join the union. So I said to my boss, Mr Link, where do I go to join the union? Why do you want to join the union, he said. He said, what's wrong with it? You haven't started the job yet. What do you know? And I said, no, no, no. I said, you know, I just have to join the union. <laughs> you know? So he put me in touch with the T&G, as well as that. So I spent, I spent a, year, a year or so there. And then I left there and I started working in the NHS. What were you doing then? I was a secretary. I worked in I worked in what was the medical personnel department. So we the, the department I was working in they used to appoint the uh, registrars, senior registrars, consultants, and so on. And interestingly enough, I I ended up working for the the uh, the area personnel officer. I was his secretary, 
And this was the irony because um, I used to go to the joint consultative committees with the unions as his secretary taking minutes. And I was fascinated by this. I was absolutely... And I always used to agree with everything the trade union reps were saying and not the, <laughs> the managers. And I thought, this is where I need to be. And and that was when I started to get actively involved with the union for the first time. You know, I'd, I'd been a member, um, but I started... I started to take more of an active interest in the union. It was the days of Margaret Thatcher. It was the early years of the Thatcher government. Uh, there were days of action and uh, we had the People's March for Jobs and, and all of that kind of stuff was going on. It was quite a febrile political uh, time, uh, as, as I remember. And I remember being on strike uh, during that time. We all walked out. I'd, I'd kind of got the trade union bug at that point and... Um, and that caused my boss some issues because he was the most senior personnel manager in the NHS in the whole of Avon County at that time. And he said to me, you know, he said, I, I'm, I'm not sure that you really should be doing this union stuff. You know, he said, because I, I had access to very confidential information from the employer's side. So there were some tensions uh, around that. And I thought, and, and by this point... Um, I was beginning to feel very frustrated as a secretary. And I thought, crikey, there's got to be more to life than this. And that was what the union gave me. The union gave me something else and, and something that I could see was beyond just typing letters for somebody. I, I went through this kind of crisis of what am I going to do? And at one point... Goodness me, I'm glad I didn't do it. But at one point, I very nearly gave it all up and decided to try and go back to, go back into my education and um, train as a social worker. That was that was something I, I thought, you know, that, that seemed to fit with what I thought, you know, but something about doing good for people, you know. But I'm glad I didn't do that. I, t I took a bit more time out to think about it. I moved away then from the uh, the NHS. I, I worked there for, for a couple of years or so. As I said, I was getting involved with the union at that point. And then I went to work for Bristol City Council for uh, a little while in the environmental health department. And I was basically doing admin stuff. I was supporting the work of environmental health officers. That was fascinating. I mean, because they would bring back photographs from places that they'd had to inspect and just seeing photographs of the, you know, the way that people lived. So I did a bit of that. And then during the course of, I'd only been, I'd only been there about six months or so. And I had a phone call from my old branch secretary, the Nalgo branch secretary in the health service, who also happened to be a Nalgo um, NEC member. And he contacted me and he said, um, our branch organiser is going to be leaving. That was a full-time pay, full paid position in the branch. He said, uh, would you consider applying for it? Mm. And I said, yeah, sure as hell I would, you know, yeah. And that's what I did. And, and in a sense, the rest is history. Because I, I applied for that, that job, I was, I was successful. And I, so I became a full-time official uh, in, in that branch... You were very young, weren't you? Twenty-three. Twenty-three. And what were your responsibilities as a union official at that time? Well, at that, at that point, it started off, they were, they were mainly administrative, so I was keeping the, the branch membership records and things like that. But that grew and that developed. And so I started doing member representation. 
I started representing the trade union side for Nalgo on the, the JCC, so I was one of the joint consultative consultative committees. So I was one of the, um, the team of negotiators for the, for Nalgo, uh, ironically sat down with Newpy and Cozy at that time, of course, and then we, we eventually merged with them to, to form Unison. So, so that was what I was doing. I was doing, um, I was, I was negotiating, I was dealing with welfare cases. I was doing individual casework, you know, much like I do now, really. <laughs> and these were people who were employed by the local authority? So these were people employed by... Well, I went back to work for the health branch. So these were people that were working in the NHS. So how long did that last for? I worked in that branch then for about six years. So in 1989, I came to Wales. I initially came over here. It was a it was a temporary promotion, so I'd been a branch organizer, and then there was a a temporary district officer position came vacant in Cardiff. One of the one of the officials in Cardiff was off on long term sick, and I applied for that. And much to my surprise, because I was still only I was only about twenty eight at the time, so I was very young to get to that level in, in the union. In between times, I'd also been a councillor in the old Kingswood Borough Council. When I was 26, I got elected to the council, um, which is now part of South Gloucestershire Council. It's one of those kind of satellite authorities around Bristol, which is where I was living at that time. I remember walking into the council chamber and being about 40 years younger than anybody else in the room, you know. So so I applied for this job with Nalgo in Cardiff. I say, amazingly, I, I got it and started working in Cardiff in 1989 I'd, I'd really only come over for about six months uh, just to just to fill this this temporary slot uh, a guy was on long-term sick and I just never went back I, I loved it I, I really thought I would go back I really thought I'd do my six months I, I'd go back it would have been good experience but the guy then decided uh, well he didn't decide he, he, he wasn't well enough to return to work so he took um, ill health retirement and the job was advertised on a permanent basis and I thought my goodness. What sort of culture was there in the Algo at the time? I imagine that most of the officials were men. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was the first female officer to be appointed at, at that level at that time. And it was very much a kind of boys' club. It was uh, Friday afternoons down the pub. And they didn't quite know whether they should involve me in that or not. And it was it was very interesting how the culture did gradually start to change because... I never bought into that. I never went to the pubs on a Friday. They used to go off playing golf. Well, I was never invited to that. So I never had the chance to turn down the invites. I was never invited. Um, Not that I would have wanted to play golf anyway. But but that was the thing. So that was what they did. So the the male officers. And in those days, the male officers um, in some of the offices were still referred to as Mr. Mr. So-and-so. you know, so didn't you once find something interesting in somebody's drawer? Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> so to, yeah, so um, the guy that I, I I was covering for, obviously I was using his office. I was sat in his desk, and I opened the drawer, and I thought, my goodness me, what's what's this in the drawer? And I pulled it out, and it was a Masonic apron. <laughs> it was a Masonic apron. But of course, back in the day, Nalgo actually had a Masonic lodge. I mean, that was, you know, that's the kind of culture we were talking about. It's not really what you think of in trade unions. Absolutely not. And and actually, Nalgo led the charge in later years to, not to outlaw people being masons, but declaring 
that they were masons in, in in their employment practices. So that was something that was very much a kind of leftover from the old days. And 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 what what he also had in his drawer, this this officer, he was um, he was a great collector of all old time now and go memorabilia. And he had a pile of old like programs from Welsh Night at Nalga Conference, and and it's still a tradition now in Unison. We still have they still have Welsh Nights and and, and so on. But this was Nalga Welsh Night, and the, the photographs of the delegates was really quite interesting. They were all in dinner suits, so you know dinner suits and the women in in long dresses, men in dinner suits. But he had these um, these programs from Welsh Night, um, so you could see who the guest speaker was going to be. They, were, they obviously had a bit of a sing song because there was the songs. And on the back, and this particular program was 1963, Now Go Conference, 1963, probably Brighton or whatever. And on the back, it said, "The ideal Now Go delegate." And there was this picture of a woman in a bikini. <laughs> this woman in a bikini and I was just thinking my god you know now I know that was like you know that was in 1963 but that was the type of organization that was by the time I'd become um, a full-time official with Nalgo it was very much a union that was at the forefront of equalities it was the first union to set up like self-organization black members groups, lesbian and gay, it was just lesbian and gay in those days, disabled members in women's groups. And to a large extent we were kind of we were kind of ahead of our members really, because some of our members found that quite difficult. You know, you know, everybody's the same, aren't they? Well no, they're not. And actually some people need more support than others and so on and so forth. That was a that was a, a great innovation in Nalgo, the, the self organisation where you know groups of people that identified with those particular characteristics could come together and determine for themselves what they felt their issues in the workplace were and should be should be dealt with. Yeah. And so you gradually climbed up the uh, hierarchy, <laughs> didn't you? Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, remind me, when was it that Nalgo and the other unions merged in order to create Unison? That was in 1993. Mm-hmm. So July 1993, we came into uh, Unison, and that was a merger with uh, Newpy and Cozy. And I think it's probably fair to say those first couple of years or so were quite difficult. I think it was absolutely the right thing to do. But nevertheless, we were bringing together three unions that had very, very different cultures. So you were bringing Nalgo, the white collar union. You were bringing Newpy, the blue collar union. And Cozy, primarily a nursing union. I mean, Newpy had nurses as well, but Cozy was was primarily a, a nursing union and actually quite predominantly mental health nursing as well. And we were putting all these people in one room and just saying, now you're all part of the same organisation. And there were all sorts of political battles um, about, you know, who would take control because there wasn't a, a lot of that at that time about which of these three partners would would be in control and so, you know, although we'd, we'd kind of gone into this, um, uh, particularly those of us like me, and there were, there were lots of us that thought it was the right thing to do, we wanted to create a new union. There were lots of people that, that didn't want to do that. They wanted to replicate their old union, but on a bigger footprint. And so I would say it probably took the best part of about 10 years, I would say, before we started to develop a unison culture rather than, you know, as, as the, the old-timers from the previous unions left and new people were coming through. And we started to get to the point where new people coming in and new activists had only ever known Unison. They hadn't known the old unions. And Unison became 
you know, a very powerful force in the public sector, very influential. I think, you know, the, the Unison General Secretary regularly sits within the top 10 most influential people in the country. So, so that was, that was, that was an interesting time, the merger, but it was, it was great. And as a result of that merger, we had a new structure and I was, I was very fortunate to be one of the people that ended up getting promoted into in the new structure and and so you know I, I ended up dealing with various different jobs at, at that level I, I had an HR role at one point I worked with our privatized utilities I, I was I headed up the local government section for a while I headed up the health section for a while and then you know we we went through another round of restructuring and we we became much more streamlined in terms of our management structures within the union and that was the point at which i became the head of health if you remember my predecessor was dave galligan did you know dave galligan yeah, yeah. dave galligan was the head of health and he retired and i took over from from dave galligan as the as the head of health when when he retired yeah what sort of influence did you have in that role in the health service, would you say, Dawn? Well, I would like to think, it's all for others to say, I guess, but I'd like to think quite influential. I, 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 one of the things that I would say was I used to go to London quite regularly to meet with my colleague heads of health from the, uh, the English regions, and myself and the head of health from Scotland. The relationship we had with our governments was very, very different to the relationship that heads of health in England had with government. In Wales, I, I mean, I'm sure it was the same in Scotland, I could pick the phone up and speak to the health minister. In England, they couldn't even pick the phone up and speak to their MP. You know, so that was very different. So we had the opportunity to be very influential, and we were. Do you think that meant that you were able, on occasions where perhaps difficulties might be arising to head those difficulties off. Yeah, and, and, and we did that We did that on more than one occasion. But what I would also say, Martin, is that was a quid pro quo, because in return for that, you know, we would, we would meet with the, the employer's side, we'd meet with the, with the Minister for Health, and there was always... The, the, the quid pro quo, if you like, was always that we found ourselves in a better negotiating position around things like terms and conditions, because it was more of a partnership approach. So it, it wasn't a question of threatening industrial action all of the time, although that we always kept that one in reserve. And in fact, I remember, you know, when Mark Drakeford was the, was the health minister, we did actually have a, a ballot for industrial action over pay. And as a result of that, what we actually ended up with was we negotiated the living wage in the NHS in Wales, we're the first uh, nation to do that. We actually were ahead of Scotland on that one. So you're proud of that, I'm I think. I'm very proud of that. I mean, I would say one of my proudest achievements, I led the negotiations around that. So we avoided industrial action. And as a result of that, we ended up negotiating the living wage. And that's the real living wage, the as living worked wa- out at Loughborough yes. University, yes. not this um, yes. other one. That, which, not the uh, fake living wage, yeah. yeah. So so that was great. And, and Mark Drakeford was a great health minister. And... Uh, and I, I really enjoyed my, my time uh, working with him. And I would say it was during that period that I really started to get an insight into the work of Welsh Government and Welsh Assembly because it was such a close working relationship. And you were tempted at one point eventually yeah. to think I could have a bit of that? 
Yes, because there's a couple of things. One is, I suppose, I, I, I started to get that real insight um, into into how Welsh government worked and and how if you approached the role properly as a trade unionist, that you could, you could influence. But ultimately, we didn't make the decisions. As trade unions, we could influence, but we couldn't necessarily make the decisions. Because the right-wing narrative would be that... Here we've got a situation which is going back to the unruly 70s where you've got union barons and beer and sandwiches and that these union officials have got a disproportionate influence over government and that that is wrong. How do you counter that sort of argument? Well, I I I think that's nonsense. And, and, you know, we had this debate when when the Welsh Government disapplied the the Trade Union Bill in Wales, those aspects of the Trade Union Bill. Uh, applying to industrial action in the public sector and we had that debate on the on the floor of the chamber and I was delighted actually to lead for the Labour group on all of the um, the amendments that the Tories put down and knocking them down one by one because they're absolute nonsense and the truth of it is of course that none of them really understand how trade unions work and they don't understand how partnership working works um, now what I would say is you know the, the clues in the title is partnership so there's no one side holds the upper hand. It is a partnership to achieve what both sides want. Now, you can't always do that. Inevitably, you can't always do that. But it, it, it is that way of dealing with something where you are trying, where both parties are trying to get to the, the end goal of achieving what is best both for government and for the, the employees uh, working for that for that government, whether it's in the NHS or where, where elsewhere. So I, I think, you know, the partnership model, the social partnership model, um, speaks for itself. If you look at the days lost through industrial action in Wales, um, much less than, than in England, um, particularly in the public sector here, uh, and in no small part down to that, that partnership approach, which was taken very early on in the days of, of, of Welsh Government. Uh, I, I sat on the uh, the Workforce Partnership Council, which, of course, with all the public sector unions, plus the, the minister, in fact, the first minister used to, used to come to those meetings. And again, you know, talking to colleagues in England, they could not, they, could, they just couldn't believe that we had that kind of relationship and that kind of access to government. And I think our members generally have seen the benefits uh, of that. But ultimately, my frustration, I suppose, was that, yes, I was a trade union negotiator. And ultimately, whatever we tried to negotiate, it wasn't my decision that whether those things happened or not. It was the government's decision whether those things happened or not. How many members were you representing when you were in those discussions? So in the health service, Unison had about 35,000 members. That's not inconsiderable, is it? not inconsiderable. I mean, the union across Wales had 100,000. Local government by far the largest, but health service was the second. And I would say, despite the fact that local government is political in the sense that councillors are elected, I found that the NHS actually is the most political service because of, and I I was the the head of health at the time when Darren Miller, God bless him, was the chair of PAC and uh, and, and Public Accounts Committee Committee, and used information that he... Uh, he gleaned through the Public Accounts Committee, basically to just be attacking the health service all the time. 
and it was during that time we had the you, you know, the, the, the office died, the line of death and, and all of that. The Daily Mail led, the Daily Mail uh, led on that and, you know, and, and, and Cameron's kind of outrageous statement. I felt very defensive of our NHS because I was working in it, I was representing people in it. And despite the fact that they would, you know, the Tories would always, they'd always predicate something with saying, and they still do, with, you know, how wonderful these staff are, and then go on and criticise them. But they're critical of the service. Who do they think? <laughs> who do they think the service is? It's the people that work in it. And I used to see that on a daily basis, that people working in the service were really demoralised by that, by that constant attack on them. And, and that's what they saw it as, as an attack on them. So, yeah, so I thought, you know, I thought, you know, I, I've, I've spent the best part of my working life uh, as a trade unionist, so I was an advocate, I was a negotiator, I was a campaigner. I was, you know, I was all of those things that I think you have to be to be a good politician as well. And I thought, you know, these are the kind of skills and the kind of experiences without holding a politics degree that would bring some benefit into the Assembly. Because I thought it was one of those things as well, because I looked around the Assembly and looked at the kind of people that were in there. And I thought, there aren't many people in there that look like me. And that come from my kind of background. And I thought, that, that needs to change. And mm-hmm. so, um, um, the opportunity came up. So it wasn't something that I was particularly looking for. But the opportunity came up, initially actually, in Caerphilly. I remember. Um, so if you remember, I, I, I put my name in the hat for the, for the Caerphilly selection... Because that was, at the time, was the neighbouring constituency to where I lived. My my constituency wasn't vacant at, at that time, although subsequently it did become. That was Ogmore. And Janice Gregory did actually stand down. But we didn't know that at the time. So Caerphilly was the neighbouring constituency. And I thought, well, do you know, I don't know. I'll have a go at this. I think we did kind of think that at one point it might be an all-women shortlist because Caerphilly had never been represented by a woman either in... Westminster or in um, in the Assembly. But it wasn't an all-women shortlist. It got twinned with Isline. Hmm. And basically that was the end of my aspirations. <laughs> Once it got twinned with Isline, Isline were never going to select anyone who wasn't from Isline. And I, and I gave it a good go. Uh, on the twinning process, you select one man and one woman. Hmm. And the man that was selected was Hevin David, who's now my colleague on the uh, on the back benches in the assembly, and the woman who was selected was Rhiannon Passmore, mm-hmm. who was also in the assembly with me. So after that experience, I thought, oh, do you know, I, I, I'm not going through that again. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible experience to, to have to go through. It's uh, it's very stressful, and, and particularly when you're trying to work constituencies that are not your own. Um, so that was the end of that. So I went back to being the head of health. For unison, and then lo and behold, and I'd, and I'd really given up on it. I thought, well, I gave it a go. That didn't. That didn't work. I'll go back and I'll do what I do, because I'd always felt I do what I do for the movement, working for the trade union, um, because I had been approached to stand for the assembly on several occasions actually over the years, and I always would say, well, no, you know, we all we we all contribute to the movement in our own ways, and I do what I do. So after not securing the uh, Kifili Islam selection, I. Um, I went back to being the head of health for Unison. And lo and behold, my predecessor, Hugh Lewis, stood down. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the only seat 
that hadn't been because every everybody had been selected by that point, and there hadn't been we weren't expecting a selection in in Merthyr either, because this was only nine weeks before the election, and we we heard that Hugh Lewis was standing down, and we just went oh my goodness, I I didn't I didn't jump to it immediately. I was contacted by people that I knew in Merthyr because of course Merthyr used to be my patch for many years. Merthyr and the old Miglamorgan was my patch for Unison when I was um, dealing with local government. In fact, I set up the Merthyr Unison branch here at that time. And I, I remember having Unison meetings, union meetings in the old in the old town hall, which is now the Red House, you know, which is where the, the old Nalgo office was and so on. So I, I still had, uh, you know, a lot of friends and connections uh, in Merthyr. I've been worked in and around the area for the best part of 12, 12 years or so. And and I said, oh, I don't know. And people said, you know, I, I you know, I think you, I, you you should give it a go, you know, give it a go. And I said, oh, I don't know. Do I want to go through it all again? And then the next that we heard actually was uh, that it was going to be an all women shortlist, which uh, in in and of itself was a challenge because that that wasn't what the constituency wanted. But to be fair to the constituency, they went to the Welsh executive. They they made their views known. That they they would have preferred an open uh, an open selection. The Welsh executive said no um, because they were very. It was the last seat to be selected, and um, they were very conscious of the the gender balance within the group and what it would what it would look like. So the executive um, said no, and um, they went with an all women shortlist. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I, I, I literally didn't throw my hat in the ring until the day the applications were going to close. I, 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 I really had to be persuaded to do it, not because I didn't think that Merthyr would be a fantastic constituency. It was, and it is, but I, I, I just was, I was uncertain right up to that last minute, and I thought, no, I'm going to do this. And then once, once you make the decision. Then you go for it, don't you? And and you work it, and you and you work it like a demon. And and I did, and I and I, I worked so hard to 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 speak to so many people across the constituency, and uh, we came to the selection. And uh, again, to my absolute amazement, there were three of us at the at the selection, um, and I won it on the first round of voting. So, and yeah, and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> now, Merthyr, of course. Although it is seen as a Labour stronghold, has had periods, including now, mm. when the local authority is not run by the Labour yeah. Party, but is run by people who call themselves independents. And there has been some activity from UKIP in the in the quite recent past in Merthyr. When you were out campaigning, did you meet much hostility from certain quarters? Personally, not not a lot. There was a lot of there was a lot of social media stuff going on, which was actually more directed at the council uh, than it was at me. And I did get a sense of, you know, I mean, the electorate aren't stupid. You know, that's very very clear. I mean, that's been been clear for a very long time. But I, what what I did get the sense is that the people were very clear that they were voting differently because it was a national election. So for the Assembly and for the general election, you know, Merthyr has consistently voted Labour for 100 years. I and mean, we might come on to talk about the, the, the current political situation in a moment, because I, 
I think, you know, where we are at the moment, I have no idea whether that will continue for another hundred years. And, and we, we can perhaps discuss that. But certainly during the assembly election in 2016, we, bid, we did pick up that people had started to become dissatisfied with the council. And that had happened in previous terms as well, and, and you quite rightly say, if you if you look at the history of Merthyr, the council does not have uninterrupted Labour control, not by any manner of means. In fact, Plaid held uh, this council back, back in the 70s. 70s. Yeah. So people do see it very differently. They do see the council very differently to the, um, the Assembly and the general election. And our canvassing returns were consistently showing us as being up around 50%. I, I, I didn't believe it. Candidates never believe that, of course, until it gets to the, until you get to the count. And one of the things that we, that I was also very conscious of and very well aware of, was that in Merthyr, the the opposition doesn't coalesce around any particular party. So the party that comes second to Labour in Merthyr is a different party every time. So we've seen Plaid. Plaid came second. No, actually, Tories came second in the, the snap general election in twenty seventeen. UKIP came second to me. Prior to that, we've seen Plaid come second. And I think the last time that Di Havard run, I think the Lib Dems came second. So, yeah, so you don't see people coalescing around any particular party. And in fact, uh, Applied AM, who will remain nameless, um, did say to me um, uh, not so long ago about, about Plaid in Merthyr, and he said, well, we've, you know, we've got no base there. We've, you know, they, they, they don't they don't really target this area. They don't, they don't see themselves as as having a base here where that would not be the case in someone like the Ronda, obviously. So that's quite interesting. That's quite interesting about Merthyr politics is that you know Labour really is seen as um, you know it, it's Labour, and and if you're anti-Labour, you vote for whichever party you think might do them the most harm in that particular election. I think I think that's what happens. And yet, if we look at Wales as a whole. Uh, there's recently been uh, an opinion poll which showed that the Tories were ahead of Labour so far as parliamentary general election was concerned. And for the first time ever, Plaid Cymru was ahead of mm-hmm. Labour. What has gone wrong with Labour? I, I don't know that there's anything particularly has gone wrong with Labour. I think, I, I think what has gone wrong is with our politics in general. I mean, if if I could use... One word to describe our politics at the moment, I would say it was division. I've never known a nation so divided politically. And it's not divided on party political lines. It's divided on the basis of whether you are a Leaver or a Remainer. And that inevitably has impacted on the support of the major parties because... The two major parties, we talked Labour and and, um, and the Conservatives, had both Leavers and Remainers in the ranks. And I think we've now seen that the, the Tories have come out more clearly for Leave, and the election of Boris Johnson tells us that, although there are some very significant Remainers still in the Tory party. And I think, you know, we've got to be honest about this. I think the Labour Party's position has been ambiguous in, in, in many ways. And, and I I totally understand why that has been um, a seat like Merthyr 100 years Labour voted to leave the European Union so we as a party campaigned to remain in Merthyr I campaigned to remain I knocked doors and spoke to 
many, many people during that election. And I remember having a conversation with the group in the group meeting, our Labour group meeting, and, and, and saying I was, I was really concerned. I, I, you know, I, I had this feeling that we, we weren't going we to win this. And I think a lot of the Remain campaigners in our own party were in denial over that. And I remember Carwyn Jones coming to Merthyr in the week leading up to, to the, uh, the referendum result, and I said to him, it, it's not looking good. Yeah, and and he was saying no 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 the bookies are saying it's okay it's okay and the bookies don't get it wrong you know and I said that's not the sense we're getting on the doorstep and sure enough I took small comfort from the fact that the of the valleys towns Merthyr had the lowest leave vote so that was some comfort but not not enough comfort but but what it means to me is forty four percent of people in Merthyr didn't want to leave the European Union fifty six percent did. So I think that is kind of front and centre of all of our politics at the moment. So if you're asked, so, so to go back to your, your point, you know, what is wrong with it? I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the Labour Party. Our values haven't changed. You know, we are still the party of social justice, equality and fairness and all of that. And that isn't going to change. And that isn't going to change whether Jeremy Corbyn's the leader or whether somebody else is the leader. That's our party. That's our values. But things out there have changed. How many marks out of ten would you give to Jeremy Corbyn as leadership of the party? Well, let me put it this way. Just prior to the general election of 2017, I was was one of the doubters. And I was one of those people that thought, you know, he's a man of great integrity. There is nothing in what he is saying I don't agree with. But somehow I don't think the public are going to buy it. And I was wrong. The public bought it and denied the Tories an overall majority. Since then, of course, um, the poison around Brexit, I don't think anybody could have really anticipated. And I think not just Jeremy Corbyn, I just think the party and, and, and the Tory party as well, the Labour Party, the Tory party, have been impacted on by that. So I, it, I think it's unfair to pin all of that onto Jeremy Corbyn. I think that is this is this is something that is to do with the politics in our country at the moment, which I find personally very depressing um, and, quite frankly, difficult to see how we how we get beyond where we are. Um, Everything's going to play out uh, in the coming couple of months, isn't it? Have you got a sense of how things are going to go? My my only sense, really, Martin, I think is that I I think we will have a general election before the next assembly election. I think there are, there are lots of possible scenarios, but Boris Johnson just continuing the way that the the direction of the Tory Party is going, without having to go to the country at some point before twenty twenty three. Is that when they they're twenty twenty two? I just can't see it. I just can't see. It. I can't see how he can get a no-deal Brexit through Parliament. And given that he has said, come hell or high water, we're going on the 31st of October, I can't see how that's going to happen, unless Parliament agrees a deal before the 31st of October. Again, I, I, I struggle to see what the EU are going to offer that's going to be any better than what, what Theresa May had on the table. So if we're up against the buffers come the 31st of October with no deal, I can't see Parliament agreeing a no deal. And then I don't think Johnson's got any option 
other than to call an election, which, of course, is exactly what Theresa May did in 2017. We know how that ended. Well, of course, uh, there's all sorts of manoeuvrings that can take place, aren't there? And we know that one of his senior aides, Dominic Cummings, Mm. has let the cat out of the bag in the sense that what they're hoping for is to be able to call a general election for after Mm. October the 31st, by which time the UK would automatically have left. But then again, there are other people, Dominic Greed, for example... Mm. Um, the Tory Remainer, who is saying that he thinks that that couldn't work. Mm. We're into uncharted territory we, here, aren't we? We absolutely are uh, into uncharted territory. And I think, you know, so so uh, what do they think will happen if we leave on the 31st without a deal? Uh, you know, they seem to be saying that somehow the EU will then want to negotiate with us after we've left without a deal. I, I, I just don't understand the logic of that. I don't understand how... That can happen. And what ace cards do we hold at that point? I mean, I don't think we hold many ace cards anyway, but certainly what ace cards do we hold once we've, once we've left? So, uh, you know, hey-ho, I, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm very glad I'm an Assembly member and not an MP. Can I say that? You know, I mean, we've, we've, uh, in my view, I think we have spent an inordinate amount of time in the Assembly debating Brexit, which I, I totally understand, of course, because... Whatever decision is taken on uh, on our position in the EU is going to impact on Wales. But ultimately, we don't get to vote on it. Ultimately, it won't be our call. And I know that Mark Drakeford and Carwin Jones before him were in constant uh, conversations and discussions with the UK government about Wales's position. But ultimately, no, we don't get a say in it. And I think, you know, in terms of the Assembly... We really have to focus on what we do because in 2021 we're going to be asking people to think about who they want to run run Wales again. And Brexit may be a distant memory by then. Do you think (laughs) Labour will be in power in the Welsh Government after May 2021? (sighs) Who knows? I, I... Martin, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't predict anything at the moment. I think it, the, the only thing that is predictable is the unpredictability of everything at, at the moment. Uh, I mean, you know, safe Labour seats are being predicted to, to fall, um, but we've seen that before. Safe Labour seats were predicted to fall in twenty sixteen, and actually, we, we ended up. Um, with 29 safe labor seats were predicted to fall in 2017 and we actually ended up with net gains you know somebody once said a day's a long time in politics 18 months is is, a, is an absolute lifetime and and who knows where we'll be in 2021 all i could say is that i will be fighting very very hard to make sure that we have another labor government running wales in 2021 thank you very much indeed thank you Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.